On Monday night, Iowa Republicans will meet in community centers and high school gyms across the state. They'll be the first voters in the country to choose who they want to be president. And in the final days before the caucuses, we wanted to know what Iowans are saying and how campaigns are strategizing. So we called three reporters. Michael Scherer. I'm a national political reporter for The Post, and I've been covering these Iowa things since, uh, I guess, 2008, 2007 was my first cycle. Hannah Knowles. I'm a campaign reporter for The Post, and I've mostly been following Governor DeSantis. This is my first presidential election I've covered, so everything's new and exciting. And Meryl Cornfield. I'm also a campaign reporter at The Washington Post, and I am not really covering anyone specifically, just kind of roaming around Iowa looking for things to write about. They've all been covering the 2024 presidential race in Iowa, where Trump has a wide lead in the polls. At the beginning of the cycle, it didn't look like it was going to be that way. But as this campaign has unfolded, Trump has pulled into a pretty commanding lead. And the place where his rivals really wanted to first draw blood to sort of show that this guy was mortal, to show that he wasn't a king getting recoronated, now looks like it may end up showing that a king is more or less getting coronated with more than 50% of the vote. There's still some suspense. It's not like it's over. The race is not going to be done after Iowa, but mm-hmm. Trump is clearly in a much stronger position than most people thought at the beginning of this. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh, your guest host today. It's Friday, January 12th. Today, where things stand in Iowa just a few days before the caucuses, and why the winner in Iowa doesn't always become the nominee. So, Meryl, I know that you've been on the ground in Iowa going around the state And earlier in the week, we talked to our colleague Isaac Arnsdorf about Trump and particularly Republican support for Trump, which I find interesting because he is facing a couple criminal indictments right now. So I guess I just want to understand his support a little more. And I know you've talked to a couple people like these two voters named Annie Smith and John Yon. What did they tell you? Like, what is it that people like about Trump and are really gravitating to right now? For one, I think it's his personality. He's magnetic to people and they get excited to come to his events just to hear him speak. A lot of the people I saw there were first time caucus goers, which is interesting because, you know, these are people who didn't participate in the last caucus and now they're feeling compelled to do it now. Uh, why, why are you deciding the caucus? Um, well, A, no one ever educated me on it. Turn around. So now that I'm older and have kids, like, I should probably pay attention, considering what has happened in the last three years. And my daughter's turning 18 this year, so we're going to do this together for the first time. Oh, that's sweet. It'll be exciting. Um, And have you decided who you're going to caucus for? Uh, Trump. And I asked them why. And interestingly, they bring up January 6th and court cases against him as reason for that. They feel like he is being attacked. And... They also compare him to Biden, who they see as low energy. I, what did you think of the event? I liked it. Uh, what did you like about it? Everything. <laughs> this one here you're talking about? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I didn't like to wait, but I liked uh, everything Trump said. What did you like of what he said? Well, just uh, going after uh, Biden was the best, best thing. 
he's he's got nothing good to say about him. So they were telling me, you know, we want to come out for our first time and caucus for Trump because we feel like he is the one that will lead us and he has done everything he promised he would and we'll do more. And that's why we have confidence in him. Yeah. And I mean, Hannah, you've been going around a lot with Ron DeSantis, who really seemed to have been positioned to be kind of Trump without the baggage, the guy to inherit whatever you want to call this movement, Trumpism, populist conservatism. Why does it seem like that vanished a little bit? What's going on with DeSantis's campaign? Yeah, well, what's really interesting about the diminished support um, DeSantis has seen is that you really see an erosion over um, many months on kind of both ends of the political spectrum. And you can look at among voters who approve of Trump, DeSantis lost a lot of ground um, starting around the time of Trump's indictments. Um, and so it seems like that had a lot to do with it. And among voters who do not really like Trump, those used to be a sizable part of DeSantis's support because he was sort of that leading alternative and people hadn't really learned as much about all these other lesser known candidates. And so as they shopped around and as they learned more about DeSantis and some of his positions that are actually pretty polarizing and that have alienated some of his donors, some of those more moderate voters, you know, they've gravitated toward people like Nikki Haley. And so you've seen that, you know, decline on both ends for him. You know, Michael, I read this story you and Hannah had authored about kind of what happened with DeSantis' campaign. And Nikki Haley even made a joke about it at the most recent debate where she was like, if you can't even run your own campaign, how can you expect to run this country? Look, if you can't manage a campaign, it's been a revolving door of political people in and out of his campaign. You've heard of campaign people going to blows with each other because they can't all agree. $150 million, and he spent more on private planes than commercials. I flew I flew commercial. I stayed in residence inns. We went and saved our money. We made sure we spent it. Right what exactly there. happened on that front? Was this like a campaign mismanagement issue, Michael? And what exactly was she referring to? How did he mismanage that campaign? Well, I think it's been one of the real decisive developments in the last two or three months, which is the, the collapse at the top of the DeSantis operation. It didn't really affect people on the ground working, you know, the phones or the doors in Iowa, but it was very destabilizing at the top. You had basically a, a, a second overhaul of the leadership. There was an overhaul in the summer on the campaign side, and then basically the whole leadership of Never Back Down, the super PAC they've been doing most of the work, left. It's an interesting story because it, I think, will go down in history as an enormous unforced error. Every campaign mm -hmm. has, especially when things aren't going well, lots of personalities clashing, lots of fights. It's very rare that they sort of immolate so spectacularly and publicly as the DeSantis people did. And what's notable is that as soon as it happened, this started happening around Thanksgiving, uh, the Nikki Haley super PAC shifted all their ads, and they're now dominating the airwaves in Iowa. They've been dominating the airwaves for, you know, more than a month to ads about the campaign falling apart, mm -hmm. which is a weird thing to be running on. But it made sense because at that point and still to this day, the DeSantis message is I'm a more competent Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I actually get stuff done. I keep my promises. I care about you. I don't care about myself. We've produced the results in Florida. We did universal school choice. We've cut taxes. We banned sanctuary cities. On and on down the line, everything I promised I would do, I've delivered. And you can expect nothing less when we're, I'm the president of the United we're States. Gonna, we're going to move on now. And it was competence that he was running on and the symbolism of his campaign imploding like that so spectacularly mm -hmm. undercut that. So you had 
ads running regularly on Iowa TV of a dumpster fire, you know, symbolizing— A literal dumpster on fire. Literal dumpster on fire, symbolizing what was happening to the uh, the DeSantis campaign. In a world of chaos, the last thing America needs is another dumpster fire. The support for Ron DeSantis plummeting. Republican voters are just not that into DeSantis. And DeSantis, who had entered the race as by far the richest candidate, he came in, you know, with more than $100 million for his super PAC, had basically dried up with his donors at this point. They haven't been giving him money down the stretch. And so he's losing the air war right now in Iowa, which is not something anyone expected would happen. He was always going to be the dominant candidate who had the relationship with these billionaires and very wealthy Floridian businessmen. And you've just had this real reversal. And I I think it was very striking a debate this week that Haley kept returning to that. And and DeSantis' defense was... This is a great window into leadership because she focused on a lot of political uh, process stuff, things that no voter cares about. And she couldn't tell you why she failed to deliver school choice to people in her state after she promised it. So she says somehow that is the indicative of, no, leadership is about producing results. But I think what he was trying to get away from is it's so symbolic at this moment because it so directly goes to the argument he's making to voters, which is, I know how to lead. I know how to manage things. And clearly in this respect, he didn't. Yeah, I mean, Hannah, does that translate down onto the ground? Like when you go out and talk to people, have they either noticed these ads or do they talk about kind of that campaign immolation? Like what do they have to say in response to all of that, I guess? I would say most voters don't know that much about the campaign drama. A lot of them here in Iowa have seen the dumpster fire ads. I've seen the dumpster fire ads pretty regularly. I think that a lot of the voters are just sort of tuning out the ads at this point, and I have yet to meet a voter who really was swayed one way or the other by that stuff. I did actually meet one voter who they went to check out Nikki Haley and attended her town hall because they had seen so many attack ads on her, and they were like, "Wow, someone must be really attack ads afraid of Nikki her. Haley." I guess she, I guess she's the one that everyone is up against. Like, I'll go learn some more about her. And they actually want to caucus for Nikki Haley now. So it can even backfire. And I think uh, the campaigns have found that some of their attack ads do backfire or end up helping Trump because voters don't like it when you criticize Trump. Yeah, I mean, former U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley does seem to have found a lot of success in this race, or I guess success as it's defined in coming second to Donald Trump. Meryl, I know that you followed Haley around. You've been talking to her voters. Now, what is the presentation and argument that Haley is trying to make and what do voters tell you about why they like Nikki Haley? Nikki Haley has her stump speech down really well and she starts off by talking about what she's done in South Carolina. She compares herself to Trump in a way where she says, you know, she offered stability to South Carolina and she says like, no more drama, no more chaos. Our country needs to move on. But she's still careful to also praise Trump and say that he was a great president at the right time, but that she can offer this new young vision of what America could look like. And when I've talked with voters after she speaks about how they felt about her, I have noticed that people who are on the fence really tend to lean into her after she's done speaking. So she is persuasive, 
in her town halls and they like how she answers questions. And even what's interesting, oh, that's so funny. Vivek's bus is driving by me right now. Yeah, we should say you're <laughs> in the car right now on the, literally on the road, right? <laughs> I, I am in Marion, Iowa, um, sitting in the parking lot of a church where there was just a Trump surrogate event with Ben Carson. And I see Vivek's bus drive by. So that's just the sights of Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Um, okay, but back back to Nikki Haley. Meryl, I know that you actually met some college students visiting Iowa, and you talked to some of them, including Jack Sabo, about why they're supporting Haley. It was very interesting to run into college students that have been going to these events. Some universities like Duke University have these programs where they take kids to actually see what the caucus looks like um, and hear from candidates. And I ran into them at an Asa Hutchinson event. So I got to ask them how their trip's been and who they've been talking with and who they like and dislike. And they, as people who lean Democratic, interestingly, most identified with Nikki Haley's message. So in the primary, um, I'm supporting Nikki Haley. Uh, I think she is brings a lot of the substantive policy analysis that that we saw from Asa, um, but is also like a viable candidate. And I think that's just another part of how persuasive she is in her town halls is because she treads such a careful line between being too much of one thing and they a lot of voters can hear themselves in what she says. So like when she talks about abortion, for example, I've asked people afterwards, like, what do you think she believes in? Like, imagine a Nikki Haley presidency, and what do you think is the abortion law of the land? And I get wildly different answers. Wow. I'll get people who say, like, I think there will be a federal ban because she said she's pro-life. And then I will get people who say she wouldn't pass an abortion ban. She said that she respects women's right to choose. Which I think, yeah, that really reflects the fact that even the party and the base can't figure out what the consensus is on this issue. But, like, you know, Michael, I guess— does this mean that Nikki Haley is doing well in this race? Is she doing good? I mean, if you're coming second in any kind of a primary, I would imagine that wouldn't be seen as a success. But as 2024 is happening, it's, of course, an unconventional year. So is this a successful campaign? Uh, well, right now, yeah, Nikki is having the most successful campaign next to Trump. We don't know what that means yet. I mean, historically, the winner of the Iowa caucus on the Republican side, does not become the president. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a very evangelical rural state that the rest of the Republican electorate doesn't always follow. Really, so that's not actually a good measure of success later on in the campaign. No, I mean you can think back to the past winners. Uh, Mike Huckabee did not win in in two thousand eight. Uh, Rick Santorum did not go on to become the Republican nominee. Rick Santorum won the Iowa caucus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, but it can be a springboard, and there is a real precedent here, and this is what Nikki is gaming at, that she's right now in some polls less than double digits behind Trump in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is the last major contest before her home state of South Carolina, which will come in late February. There's about a month in between there. So she is hoping for an above-expectations win in Iowa. If she comes in second, if she ties... DeSantis. I mean, right now the polls are basically even for DeSantis and Haley in Iowa. If she can beat expectations, that will give her a boost Mm -hmm. going into New Hampshire. That will hurt DeSantis, who is not really a factor right now in New Hampshire. Chris Christie just got out. And she has a real shot in New Hampshire, I think, of either basically tying or coming very close to Trump or beating Trump. Yeah. And if she's able to, especially if she's able to beat Trump in New Hampshire— 
that will really reset the whole conversation mm -hmm. for that month going into South Carolina, her home state. It's still an uphill climb for her. Trump is still dominant around the country. It's really hard to envision from here a clear path for her to you know, get enough delegates to win this nomination. But she can at least win a new seat at the table, having basically cleared out uh, most of her, her rivals. And, and we have precedent for this. It's happened at many points in the past. John McCain got beat very badly in Iowa. One New Hampshire goes on to become the, the, oh, wow. the nominee in, in 2008. You know, George H.W. Bush didn't do well in, in Iowa. I mean, the, the, it's so you can do that. It's just such a different year because Trump really is the dominant player right now. This mm -hmm. isn't an open primary. This is much more like a, a reelect primary. But there is a path, and there yeah. is suspense here, and we don't know what's going to happen. And, and I think the real decider is going to be what happens on the 23rd in New Hampshire. And to get there, we have to find out what happens in Iowa first. So there's a real chance for Haley to change that narrative. You know, I you mentioned Chris Christie. Hannah, I'm curious. He was the former governor of New Jersey. He was pro-Trump at the beginning of Trump's first administration. Then he became really anti-Trump. He dropped out of the race. What was kind of his argument to voters as to why he should be president? And I mean, I guess part of me just wonders, you get so close to the caucus, why drop out now? Like, what would the logic be in there? So Christie's argument um, was really centered on Trump, and I'm the only guy who's going to tell you the truth about Trump and directly criticize him on his character, on his attempts to overturn the election. These issues that the other candidates have largely stayed away from, even if they're criticizing Trump on other fronts like policy. And so Christie had, you know, double digits in some polls in New Hampshire, lower double digits, but he was solidly behind Nikki Haley at this point. And as Haley pulls closer to Trump in New Hampshire, people start to think, wow, you know, she has a real shot at potentially, you know, making this really close, even scoring an upset. And um, if Christie drops out, his voters are more moderate leaning, they're independent voters, they're people who would probably gravitate toward Haley in large part. And so, you know, Christie, if he stays in and he siphons those voters away from her and helps hand Trump um, New Hampshire, he would definitely get blamed for that. And mm -hmm. his reason for being in the race, he says, is to make sure Trump doesn't win again. And so that would be at odds with, with everything. It would kind of undercut that argument if he siphoned votes, you know, and then that does make sense. And we should remember there are others in this race still, particularly Vivek Ramaswamy and former Arkansas governor Asa Hutchinson. And that Asa is not a name frankly, I see or hear at all when we talk about this race. But Meryl, you went to his town hall. What was uh, what was the atmosphere like? Were there Asa Hutchinson supporters? I guess, yeah, who was there? Overall, the, the audience of the town hall was mostly Duke students. Mm -hmm. There were only a very small handful of actual Iowans to the point that even Asa Hutchinson had asked at one point, like, do we have any Iowans here? Because he really wanted to get a question from someone who could actually caucus for him. He told me that when he was door knocking earlier that day, that he came to a door and the person opened it and said, I love you. Who are you going to support? And he said, I'm still running. And he's still having to make this case that not only should they vote for him, but they should remember that he's still in the race to begin with. 
And then what about Vivek Ramaswamy, the kind of firebrand, young new candidate that came on the scene? I think he put in a new injection of cash. You know, like, Michael, first of all, what do you make of Vivek as a candidate? And I guess what does it seem like his long game is? What's his goal in this campaign? So we've had this type of candidate in previous cycles. Ben Carson kind of played this role in one of the cycles. It's a campaign based on getting attention, Mm -hmm. right? So that's what Vivek's campaign has been. He's really good at it. He kind of, when he was in the debates, he was dominating the debates. It's not a campaign that really presents voters with a realistic picture that they would be president or could be president. And a lot of things he says to get attention undercut that idea that he is a real candidate or who could do it. And so you saw him rising in the polls early on. He was getting into like the mid-high single digits. And then you saw him drop off. But also, there's not really a downside for him to continue to campaign because he still does get attention. And at some point, he can leverage that into something else. You know, he's got a pretty decent relationship with Trump. If Trump wins, you could see him working in a Trump administration. He's got a pretty uh, camera-friendly demeanor, so you could definitely see him getting a job in conservative media. I don't know what his plans are, but but he'll have a lot of options when it's over. We've been talking a lot about the T-word, Trump, throughout this conversation, but you know, I want to make sure that I'm understanding. Are, there are issues, though, that are animating voters in this election, correct? It isn't just all coming down to whether you're supporting Trump and kind of his push for retribution. What are some of the other issues that people seem to be personally passionate about in 2024? I'll start with you, Meryl. Definitely the border is a big one I hear from a lot of voters uh, when I ask people, what are the top issues that come to mind for you when you're thinking about going to the ballot box or to the caucus? That's number one. And then also number one, high ranking, but just doesn't always come to mind for people is the economy. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will end up saying, yeah, and I pay too much for groceries and gas. And I don't understand why Biden isn't pumping more gas because that's something that they hear from Republicans a lot, even though energy production is at its highest. Like it's not just like not something that registers or and the economy is doing better. Like they still view it as a Biden problem. Mm-hmm. Hannah, is that the same thing that you've been hearing from people? Um, You know, I mean, I do feel like a lot of the race has sort of boiled down to like Trumpism and not Trumpism. And do we want to, you know, offer something a little bit different as a party, a little bit more, you know, palatable to those middle of the road voters, kind of a new generation? Or do we want to stick with this guy who a lot of people blame for losses in 2022 and, and in previous years um, for Republicans, but, you know, that the base just still loves. I think that there are, like, definitely substantive divisions on stuff like foreign policy, but even that is sort of, it's all wrapped up in Trump. Like, Trump, you know, really helped push a lot of the kind of more isolationist strain in the Republican Party. And so you see like DeSantis and Vivek kind of siding more with Trump on America first, less help to Ukraine versus Nikki Haley, uh, Mike Pence, some other kind of more traditional conservatives on that issue. After the break, how the caucuses will work on Monday night and what each candidate wants to see in the results. We'll be right back. So I want to reset a bit and talk about the mechanics of the Republican Iowa caucuses. 
But first, I do want to ask, every election cycle, Democrats have these really complicated caucuses in Iowa. But this year, they're not doing that. That's not happening. How come it's only Republicans that are doing it? Well, so that has to do with internal Democratic politics and the president's preference. But basically, he decided in late 2022 that he didn't want Democratic nomination fights to proceed like they had in the past. He didn't want, you know, primarily white states, Iowa and New Hampshire, to dominate all the money and all the energy early on. And he effectively demoted those states. He made South Carolina the first approved primary Mm -hmm. on the Democratic side. Right. But then Republicans are still caucusing. So can you explain what is the caucus like for Republicans and what can people expect for the turnout on Monday night? For Republicans, this is basically a vote, but to take the vote, you have to show up at a time in a place, Mm -hmm. and then you cast your ballot. It's not as complicated as what Democrats do. Usually there's a bunch of speeches that the various campaigns will do if there's anybody who shows up and doesn't know who they're going to vote for, not very likely. And then people cast a ballot and people go home. You can register same day. So it's also a party building activity. But the trick this cycle is, I mean, I think most of the cycle people were expecting a really high turnout. Iowa's like a three million person state. It's a pretty small state. A big Iowa caucus turnout is like 200,000. Mm-hmm. So it's a very small fraction of that population is going to actually decide this. And early in the cycle, people were projecting, you know, 230,000 people could show up. Massive numbers by caucus standards. Uh, we we're looking at weather projections that say the wind chill could be negative 30 Monday night. So we don't know whether that'll happen. Uh, you know, Iowans can handle the cold weather, but... If it's 6.30, it's dark, and the wind chills 30 degrees below zero outside, and you got to trudge down to the local community center to take this vote, you may have lower turnout, and that could affect the result. I think a lot of people, like the big question is like who has the turnout edge and who will get the boost in the end from that? And I think, you know, some people argue that, well, like Trump's base is just really devoted, and at the end of the day, his people are more likely to make it out. But the Trump people are also worried about complacency and people thinking, you know, Trump seems to have this locked up. Maybe I can just stay home. And then DeSantis has touted this really massive field organization that's knocking on the doors of their target voters like five or six times at this point. So I think there's a real question of who in the end, you know, actually has a turnout on their side. Hannah, let's go ahead to the end of caucus night. Now, We've established pretty clearly that it's going to be difficult to beat Donald Trump. But for a Ronald DeSantis campaign, what does victory look like? Well, what is an ideal scenario that could come out of this campaign that you've heard from them? Well, um, the idea is that they outperform the current polls, again, based on this turnout organization, this field work that they're very proud of in Iowa, and that they poll significantly closer to Trump and away from Haley so that she's in a a clearer third place. You know, if he's still basically neck and neck with Haley or even behind Haley, um, you know, that's an embarrassing finish for DeSantis in a state where he's basically put all of his resources and money at this point. He's in the single digits in New Hampshire. I mean, I think the path forward gets really tough for him after that. Mm -hmm. Um, What is interesting is you do see um, this chatter and the whispers have kind of gotten louder and louder about like, is there... Maybe you should stay in as long as possible just in case, you know, something happens to Trump down the line, right? There's all these kind of crazy scenarios of like just 
based on all the uncertainty hanging over him. But right now, Haley seems far better positioned to seize that runner-up spot. Yeah, I mean, Merrill, is Haley's campaign really looking to Iowa for some sort of success? Or like, as Michael was saying, is New Hampshire potentially going to be that inflection point for her campaign? What are they hoping to get out of uh, the caucuses? I think Haley's campaign is still optimistic, or at least they present the tone that they are. But I think that if you just look at like how much time she spends in the state and the what she invests, like she's clearly focused on New Hampshire, where she knows that voters would most likely resonate with her message. It is like a, a large share of independence there that she can appeal to. So she knows her territory. DeSantis knows his. <laughs> yeah, and like Michael, for Trump. It doesn't seem like just winning the primary or the caucuses is going to be, you know, enough because he's already the front runner. What does Trump's campaign and himself want out of these first contests? And what does a real victory look like for them? Well, what he wants out of this contest is to end Ron DeSantis. DeSantis is Him o- specifically. Yeah, because DeSantis has always been in the Trump world the biggest threat. It was someone who was running to try and recapture some of Trump's voters, some more moderate voters, had a lot of money, was living in Trump's backyard. That has been a vicious campaign. And Trump now feels like they're sort of on the edge of winning it. And they would like nothing more than to just end that. And so they can turn their fire on Haley. I think they feel they can win New Hampshire. If they'd win New Hampshire well, Against Haley, basically head-to-head, that's really going to hurt her. And they are very strong right now in South Carolina, Haley's home state. So they're feeling pretty good. I think their goal would be, I mean, the ideal result for Trump would be a dominating over 50% win with, you know, Haley slightly above DeSantis and both of them in the teens, which some polls suggest is maybe a likely outcome at this point. Mm -hmm. Because it would look like this is basically over and it would be harder for Haley to make the argument that I've got real momentum going into New Hampshire. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time. I know both of you are out there in Iowa right now, Meryl and Hannah. Meryl, you're literally sitting in the car right now. Have fun, stay warm, and hey, happy primary season. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Arjun. Michael Scherer is a national political reporter, and Hannah Knowles and Meryl Cornfield are campaign reporters for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Rennie Svernowski with help from Emma Talkoff. It was edited by Lucy Perkins and mixed by Sam Baer. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Martine Powers, Elahe Izadi, Ted Muldoon, Monica Campbell, Lucy Perkins, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Bishop San, Rennie Svernovsky, Sabby Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, Peter Bresnan, Allison Michaels, and Renita Jablonski. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back on Tuesday after the holiday with more stories from the Washington Post. Mm-hmm.